Well, good evening, church. So, open up to Genesis chapter 14, but no need to stand. I probably should have waited for Albert to stand before I said that. No, but uh, Genesis 14, verses 1 through 24. You know, it's a big chunk of text, so we're not going to read it up front this time. Um, Instead, we'll just open in prayer, and then um, in the course of the sermon, every single verse will be read of this chapter. Uh, The title of the sermon is The Faithfulness of Faith, so I'm uh, happy to be continuing in Genesis, and so let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer really quickly, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Genesis 14. There is so much in this chapter, Lord, so much here. I mean, so much, I think, in every chapter of Genesis, uh, Lord. And so I just pray that you would be with me and help me um, really to to show the fruit of, of what is in this text, Lord, that we would be able to mine out all the treasures and um, and that people will see it and marvel at, at what is in your word, that will marvel at you, Lord Jesus. So please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive uh, what's in your word. Remove me as much as possible, um, Lord, and just may we all be edified and grow to be, um, you know, just faithful believers. And if there's anybody that doesn't know you, we pray that you would save them this evening. And then, Lord, we just pray in everything that you be glorified. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so it wasn't yesterday. It was two days ago I saw a video of a question and answer session at Grace Community Church, which is John MacArthur's church. And I saw this, this little 10-year-old girl got up from the crowd, went to the microphone, and asked John MacArthur how she could know if she has saving faith and how she would then know whether or not she should be baptized. And so he started asking her questions. He said, do you believe God is the creator of heaven and earth? She said, yes. And so then he said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man who came to earth, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and died for our sins? And again, she said, yes. He then asked, do you believe that he rose on the third day and is ascended at the right hand of the Father? And again, she answered, yes. And so then he asked another question. He said, do you believe he will return and that there will be a resurrection of the dead where those who belong to him will go unto everlasting life and those who don't belong to him will go on to everlasting judgment? Again, she said, yes. She said, yes. And so then he says, do you believe Jesus is your savior who died for your sins? And do you desire to turn away from your sins and live for him. And so she said yes to that as well. And then he smiled with his gentle John MacArthur smile that very few people give him credit for. And he said, well, I have good news for you, little kid. He didn't say little kid. But he said, I have good news for you. You have saving faith. You're saved. And then she started crying and everybody started clapping. And it was like a a real tender moment, right? And so it really was a a wonderful thing to see. One of the few uh, things on social media that was actually uplifting for once. And I would say that it it really captured the idea. There's one thing I loved about it is it captured the idea that true faith, first and foremost, must have the right object of faith. In other words, you have to believe the right things. I don't care how sincere you are about what you believe. If your faith is on the wrong object, then your faith's not going to save you. Your sincerity is not going to save you. So first and foremost, we have to believe the right thing. And that little girl believed in the, in the right things. But then that got me thinking, right, to to move a little beyond this. When someone truly believes the right things and they surrender their life over to Christ, their faith should become more than faith. 
And you might say, what do I mean? How does faith become more than faith? Faith becomes faithfulness, right? When you really believe your faith should produce faithfulness. And as I was thinking about that, as I watched that video, I cross-referenced it in my mind to Genesis 14, since that's what I was studying this week. And I'm like, you know what? This chapter really embodies that. It shows what it looks like when somebody has faith and it produces faithfulness, okay? And so Abram, at this point of his journey, is on a good roll, okay? He's on a good roll. He believes in the right God. And so we should expect to see that faith, that belief, produce faithfulness. And we're definitely going to see that in the text. And so for the note takers, the point of the text is true faith necessarily produces faithfulness. Now, that's the big picture, universal, timeless truth. I mean, we're going to be talking about Abram being an awesome warrior here. And so the text isn't calling us to go out and start fighting marauding kings, okay, marauder kings. But ultimately, the timeless principle is true faith produces faithfulness. And and we're going to see that in this really important event in the life of, of Abram. And there's going to be a lot of things we're actually going to see in this chapter. Now, it has been a while since I've preached from Genesis, so I think I need to catch us up on where we are. Starting back in chapter 12 is when we hit the next major section of Genesis. And there, God called the man Abram into salvation, and he called him into a destiny that he had planned for Abram before the beginning of time. See, God calls this man while he was an unbeliever. And we know that God's call is is, is effective because the very fact that God called Abram meant Abram would come. And so Abram became a believer. And God made some pretty big promises to Abram. And the way the promises were laid out made it clear, especially when you're comparing the first part of the book with those promises, it made it clear that God is meaning to reverse the curse caused by Adam through what he was about to start to do with Abram. And just from, as an example, and I, and I went into a lot of detail on this when I preached on it, but in the first 11 chapters, the word curse is mentioned five times. And the call of Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the word bless or blessing, which is the opposite of curse, is stated five times. We saw in the first 11 chapters with the curse, the ground was cursed. And yet with Abram, he's promised a land, a ground that will flow with milk and honey. With the curse, childbearing was going to be difficult. Yet Abram and his wife, who are beyond the natural ability to produce at this point, are promised by God that they would have offspring that will one day be innumerable. In a curse or a judgment, okay, we saw that the nations in chapter 11 were scattered all over the earth as part of the curse, as part of the judgment. And yet through Abram, all the nations of the earth will not be cursed, but they will be blessed. So my point is God can overcome all aspects of the curse. And he's beginning to do so with the call of this one man, Abram. But God did make it clear that ultimately it's not going to be Abram, but it's going to be Abram's offspring through who this will finally and ultimately be fulfilled. So because of all of this, Abram, this man, is one of the most pivotal figures in the Bible. You could definitely say that that Abram represents a hinge point of history where the things that start with him are going to affect the rest of history. They're going to affect the rest of the Bible. So this is a, a huge turning point in the Bible. And what we saw in chapter 12 is Abram responded very well to this call at first, if you remember. He actually leaves his family, like the, the, his extended family, right? And he heads to this land he had never been to, the land of Canaan, the land that God promised him. And while he was there, he starts building altars to worship God. 
And most poignantly, if you recall, he built an altar between Bethel and Ai, with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. And then that should, again, have us start thinking, because in Genesis, again and again, we see that movement toward God is westward, movement away from God is eastward. For example, when God expelled Adam and Eve, what side did he kick them out of of the garden? At the east. And then when God expelled Cain from the community of humanity and said, you're going to wander, where did Cain go? East. And then he built a city there in defiance. After the flood and humanity is supposed to be scattering all over the earth, where did they rebel and build a city with a tower? In the east. It's where the Tower of Babel was. So Abram building an altar between Bethel and Ai is very important because the word Bethel literally means house of God. The word Ai literally means ruins, okay? And Bethel was to the west, the house of God to the west and the ruins to the east. And that's where Abram builds his, his altar. Point is, Moses has given us all these details. He's specific for a reason. And then, of course, later when the tabernacle and then even after that, the temple's built, again, the way back into the presence of God is westward through the curtain and ultimately westward into the Holy of Holies. And and the whole temple has an arrangement that imitates the Garden of Eden. So again, with Abram, we, we, we see this kind of stuff and we see his good example. He obeys God. He sets up these proleptic or prophetic altars. But then if you remember... In the second part of chapter 12, Abram acted like a total scoundrel. A famine hits the land of promise, which was a a true test. And rather than walking by faith, he takes his family to Egypt, a place that uh, had a reputation for wickedness. And I'm just going to put this in the most blunt terms. When he was there, he pimped out his wife to Pharaoh to save his own life. And, And when you look at the Hebrew, she was not protected in terms of her purity. Pharaoh took her as his wife. And this occurred for some time, right? So pretty much Abram's cowardice made her an adulteress, okay? Now, Abram would not do the right thing. So God intervenes, strikes Pharaoh with plagues. That sounds like something in the future, Egypt being struck with plagues. And then Pharaoh gives Abram his bride back and gives Abram a bunch of plunder as he then leaves Egypt, right? So he leaves Egypt with spoils, and and that paints the picture of what's to come with Abram's nation that will come from him, Israel. So my point is, Abram messes up really bad, but God still saves him from his own foolishness and increases his riches at the same time. Talk about grace, right? Well, then we get to chapter 13, and we're hoping that Abram's going to turn this around and repent, and he does, He does. He goes back the way he came up to Israel or to Canaan at that time. He goes back to that very important altar between Bethel and Ai. And it tells us he calls on the name of the Lord. He repents. And then from that point on, he begins to serve God very loyally. He serves faithfully. And the first big test that came was between him and Lot. When Abram's men and Lot's men started fighting over possessions, Abram's like, you know what? I'm not going to put riches before this relationship. So he tells Lot, You pick which way you want to go, I'll go the opposite way. Well, Lot went to the most wicked part of the land. He looked at Sodom, which it describes as being watered like the garden of the Lord. So it's a cheap imitation of God's garden, okay, God's city. But it looked good to Lot's eyes. And guess which direction it was? East. And so that is where Lot goes. But Abram was content to be where God called him. The promised land, right? And so God encourages him and says, you know what, Abram, walk the whole land. This is all going to be yours. It's going to belong to you and your descendants. And then after Abram does that, 
He settles near Hebron, near the oaks of Mamre, and that's where he builds an altar next to those oaks, which again, an altar to God near trees, near a garden-type scene, and so it's keeping that, that same theme. So that's where Abram's settling for a while, and he builds that altar so that he could continually worship God. And that's where we ended last time. We ended on a high note. Abram, is at a, he's in a good place at, at, this, at this point. He repented. He recovered from his earlier faithlessness. So now he's being faithful. So chapter 14 is going to be, bring the biggest test yet. It's going to put all of that to the test. So the question is, will Abram still be faithful? Will he show his faith to be real? Will his faith produce faithfulness? Well, let's look at chapter 14 and find out. It's quite fascinating. Um, there's a lot of names that I'm going to try to say right, just to let you know in advance. Um, we'll see how I do. But pretty much Lot's choice to go east into Sodom, into the city of man, is going to affect Abram. Unfortunately, when a believer does something dumb, it affects other believers. And there's a big principle there that maybe we could talk about a little later if, if we get to it. But I want us to look at what's going on here, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that, that the first part of the chapter leads into. So look at the first three verses. Here's where we'll have some fun with these names. So Moses writes this. He says, In those days, King Amraphel, or no, Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elasar, King Caterleomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goim waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemember of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Siddim Valley, that is the Dead Sea. Okay, so you might be saying, what did this man just read? <laughs> Let me sum this up in, in the easiest way I can. You have a coalition of four kings who are coming to wage war against five kings. Now, the four kings are foreign. They're coming from Mesopotamia, which would be like modern-day Iraq. These four were the megapowers of their day. Now, the five kings they're attacking are small-level local kings near the Dead Sea in the land of Canaan. Okay, so these, these five local kings, they're, they're smaller, they're weaker, they, they come from weaker societies. Now, an exact identification of these kings, these four megapowers, is impossible because the historical records from those times aren't very complete. But here's what we can say. We could say a little bit about them. King um, Amraphel, or Amraphel of Shinar was the king of Babylon because Shinar is Babylon. We've, we've seen that. And that's what Shinar refers to. So that means this man was either the descendant or heir of Nimrod himself. Now, this next guy, King uh, Cater Cater uh, Latimer, let, la, King Cater, la, oh, that guy, I had his name right. The king of Elam, he was the, he was, that was part of southern Iran, okay? Now, those two, we kind of know the regions. The other guys, we don't know exactly where they're coming from. King Tidal of Goyim was likely the ruler of a small empire within Mesopotamia, because the word Goyim just means nations, so he probably had a lot of different little ethnicities under his, uh, under his control, this other guy, Arioch of Elisar, is unknown, but there have been ancient speculations. doesn't really matter. What we can say is after the 1700s BC, you can't have a coalition like this because Hammurabi conquered everything. Before 1700 BC is exactly when you could have this, which means in the, the time of Abram matches what we're reading. Okay, So if somebody was just making this stuff up, they happen to get the time right of when something like this could happen. 
which means they weren't making this up, right? It's the word of God. Now, you also, so, so you have these marauding kings. They're kind of like pirate kings that band together to wreak havoc on those who are weaker. The kingdoms in Canaan were certainly small fries in comparison, okay? Now, the five local kings were mainly from Sodom and Gomorrah and a couple, three surrounding smaller kingdoms from the area. So that's the setting. The question is, why would these four powerful kings come and wage war against the five weaker local kings of the Dead Sea? Look at verse 4. It answers. It says they were subject to Caterlaumer for 12 years, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So apparently Caterlaumer of Elam was the most powerful ruler during this time. He's the head of the nations, right? The four powerful ones, they answer to him. He's the head. And then all these other little ones also answer to him. So it says they were under his control for 12 years, meaning they were paying tribute, right? But at some point, at the end of that 12 years, they got tired of it because what does it say? It says in the 13th year, they rebelled. That's why this war is happening, okay? Now, you might be wondering, why did these five small fries think they could win? A hint will come in the next few verses. Because when the four kings invade, they're going to attack a lot of people who aren't related to these five local kings. And so what likely happened was these five local kings formed an alliance with each other and then convinced a lot of the other peoples nearby that, hey, we could all collectively stand up to these guys. He can't beat all of us. Unfortunately, he can. Um, So look at verses 5 through seven. It says in the 14th year of Caterlaumer and the king, no, it says in the 14th year, king, uh, in the 14th year, Caterlaumer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emin and Shaveh Kiriathaim and the Horites in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. Now, let me sum it up like this. Caterlaumer was the leader, as I said, of the four powerful kingdoms. They invaded Canaan on the exact path that you would expect back then, the king's highway, because that's the order of these conquests. It's exactly the way it would happen. And one thing that is interesting is who these people were. Notice the first three, Rephaim, Zuzim, and Emim. Now, if you like to read Deuteronomy for fun, you would know that all three of these groups were giants. They were giants. These were large people. For example, King Og of Sihon was one of the remaining descendants of the Rephaim, one of the survivors, and his bed was 13 and a half feet long. Okay, so these were big people. Deuteronomy also tells us that Emim were as tall as the Anakim, um, who were also another group of giants. And so the point is, these would not be easy peoples to defeat. I mean, when you're showing up and you're fighting an army of people nine feet tall, that's not going to be easy. There's definitely a physical disadvantage here. But what does it tell us? These four kings were strong enough to lay waste to these societies of giants. And then added to this list are the Amalekites, who were nomads, who were known for their ferocity. They also weren't easy to beat. They were fighters. And yet, they got mopped up too. And so my guess is the local five kings figured, we can't beat all these guys. We can't beat the giants. We can't beat the Amalekites. So neither can uh, Caterlaumer. Well, they were wrong. This foreign coalition comes in, and they took the land. So now all that was left were the five. So they really only have one choice now. The five have to show up and fight 
this overlord that they're trying to break free from. And so verses 8 through 12 tells us the results of this attempt. If you look at verses 8 through 12, it says, Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against king Caterlaomer of Elam, king Tidal of Goyim, king Amraphel of Shinar, and king Arioch of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. So they lost. They lost bad, right? Some of them even fell into asphalt or tar pits. Not fun. Although the Hebrew might imply they they purposely fled to those pits. It's hard to say. The rest fled to the mountains. Point is, they got whooped. They got whooped. And so now they're put back under the thumb of King Caterlamer. And and given that these guys traveled a long distance to get to Canaan to put these guys in their place, you know they're going to make it worth their time. And how did people make it worth their time back then? Plunder. Plunder. So they're going to they're gonna make it financially worth their time by doing what pirate kings do. They're going to steal as much as they can from the people they beat. Verse 11 said they, quote, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. So now these rich and lush and yet wicked cities, they were broke. Even their food was taken. They're going to have to wait till the next year to be able to get their regular harvest and start eating regularly again. Now, at this point, we might be wondering, what is the point of all this? We're, 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 12, we're, we're 11 verses in at this point, and this is the first war brought up in the Bible. But surely there were other wars, probably even bigger wars before this one. So why is this the first time a war is described with detail in the Bible? The answer is real simple. You want to know why this is here? Look at verse 12 again. They also took Abram's nephew Lot. And his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. That is why we need to know this. This was Abram's nephew. This war between heathen kings is something that Abram probably could have stayed out of. But because Lot had to go live in the wicked city, and he got sucked into this, now Abram has to get sucked into this. Okay, And so, a good reminder here. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, it's worth reading, because the city of Vanity Fair... Looks good to the eyes of the flesh, but it leads to ruin and death. Sodom looked good to the eyes of Lot. He went there to get rich. Now he's a slave. Let that lesson be be taught, right? Now, we could look at this situation and we could say, serves him right. Lot got what he deserves. He's the one who chose to go and live among the wicked. Let him be a slave. But what did we learn last Sunday from Luke chapter 15? Is that how God responds to lost sheep? Even if the sheep was dumb enough to wander, even if Lot was dumb enough to go to Sodom, is that how we should be thinking about Lot or the lost sheep? No. At great risk, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes into the harsh Judean wasteland to go find that sheep. Okay? We know that in Second Peter, it tells us that Lot was righteous. He might not be living righteous. He might be making some really dumb decisions. But God is not going to let Lot be destroyed. This will not be the first time that God saves Lot from his choices. We're going to come back to this in Genesis 19. God seeming to have to get this sheep out of trouble um, on numerous occasions. Okay? But that is what the good shepherd does. 
That's what the good shepherd does. And I dare think sometimes we forget how often we get into dumb situations, and yet the Lord continues to receive us. So anyhow, who is God's guy on earth at this point? Who's the guy that's worshiping God? Who's God's chosen instrument by which the redemption of the world will come, and at least will come through this guy's loins? It's Abram at this point. So whose responsibility is it to represent the interests of God at this point? Abram. So we read this in verse 13. It says, One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. Now, this is the only place where Abram's called the Hebrew. There's a lot of speculation why, but let's put it this way. This is identifying him with Heber, and it's letting the you know, readers know why future Israelites are going to be called Hebrews. This is just what Abram was called, and so a descendant of Abram, at least through Isaac and Jacob, will be Hebrews. Anyhow, the news reaches Abram. What's he supposed to do now? Well, consider the odds, right? Consider the odds against anyone trying to attack these marauder kings. You had five kingdoms rebel against the head, Cater Laomer, and they got mopped. Additionally, the marauders wiped out giants, as I said. They swept through the land. Kingdoms and giants could not stop them. So what's Abram supposed to do? What's God's man supposed to do? I mean, Abram's not a kingdom. He might have a big estate, but he's not a kingdom. What's he supposed to do when greater people have failed? Well, look at verse 14. Moses writes this. He says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men, born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's what Abram does, right? He's so committed to his family that he will pursue this conquering horde with just 318 men. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Sounds like a shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go on a vain search for the one in the Judean wilderness. Yet, I would say Abram's case sounds a little crazier, right? But I do want us to honestly consider Abram's assets here. It says the 318 were, quote, trained men. That means these were professional warriors, okay? And you need to keep in mind that back then, most nations did not have large professional militaries where being a soldier was a full-time job. Okay, like you could join the army now, that's your career. That's not how it was back then. It's more of a modern thing. I mean, the Romans did it to an extent. But most of the time, the way it worked is there'd be a tiny little army that's always standing just in case you get attacked. But when they needed to go to war, all the men were required to put down their farming tools and in the spring months, grab their sword and go to war. So my point is they were not professional warriors. They're farmers, stonemasons, and so forth, who at least for a couple months out of the year could grab some swords and spears and and go and do a little damage, okay? So my point is, not all the soldiers on the battlefield were ancient versions of John Wick, okay? But these 318 men were 318 ancient versions of John Wick, is my point. They were like David's mighty men, okay? Their job was war. That's what they did. They were experts at it. Just like David's men were able to do amazing things and they could defend David and Nabal and all these people and nobody could like steal their sheep and stuff like that. Same type of thing. These 318 had the job of protecting Abram, his wife, their shepherds, their slaves, their flocks, pretty much everything that belonged to Abram. And by the way, if he's got 318 highly trained men born in his household, then by this point, his household, when you take his shepherds and servants, it's got to be well over a thousand people. So Abram's a community unto himself. 
And he's got this elite group of 318 man killers. So with 318 men like this, you could do some real damage. You could, especially if you use strategy like attacking at night and dividing your forces to attack from multiple angles. And by the way, that's exactly what Abram's going to do. So yeah, they could do some damage. But even with all of that, the odds are still against them. They are vastly outnumbered. Even with a good strategy and the element of surprise, the odds are they would be killed. Yes, they'll be able to make these four kings pay a heavy price, but it's a numbers game. Eventually, they would die. To win in a situation like this would be a one in a thousand shot. So from a standpoint of pros and cons and rationality and even efficiency, you would probably conclude that this isn't worth it. Lot, he made his bed. He's a loss. I'd like to save him, but how can I? Yet, that's, that's not the point, right? See, these, these 318 men plus Abram were the epitome of excellence. But their excellence would not be enough to overcome these powerful kings that already laid waste to the land plus giants. But here's where we need to understand that a text like this shows us there's a difference between excellence and faithfulness. Where excellence falls short, faithfulness does not. Faithfulness does what's right despite the odds. So Abram's got this moment here. And, I, and I'm going to steal this example from the, the Bible Talk podcast professors, Jim Hamilton and Sam Amadi. But they pretty much say this is Abram's Aragorn moment. Okay, so for all you Lord of the Ring nerds, you're like, Aragorn moment? Okay, explain. Well, so if you remember at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, this army of orcs steals the two hobbits. Mary and Pippin and runs off with them. And so then Aragorn gives this like little speech saying, look, if we're true to ourselves, we won't abandon Mary and Pippin to torture and death. So Aragorn with just two pals, an elf and a dwarf, pretty tough guys though, they say, let's go hunt some orc. And then they chase these guys down. Well, that's going to be Abram's mentality here. He's got 318 men, but we're not going to let these, these kings, we're not going to let them run off with Lot, not while we still have strength in us. Let's go hunt some kings. You know, I'm not sure that's exactly what he said, but that's what I'm picturing. So this was Abram's hour. This was his hour, right? This was his moment to show that he really believes God because God promised him that he will have this land. God promised him that he will have descendants. God compared Abram to a nation and then all the other nations compared to that nation were said to be just families, small little tribal families. So if Abram's going to be that great, he can't die here. He can't. And this is what God promised Abram would be. So if he believed it, and he believed it was his duty out of love and loyalty to go after the lost sheep, then faithfulness demands that he would do this. It would lead him to this Aragorn moment. And he will go hunt these kings. That's why verse 14 ends by saying, they went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is northern Canaan. Um, It's called Laish back in the time of of, of Abram. But pretty much they're, they're chasing these guys. And like I said, Abram's going to deploy a wise strategy, and they will take out these kings, and God will grant them victory, but ultimately, it's only because God's granting them the victory. Despite the odds, Abram, by faith, goes after these guys, and God grants them the victory. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, and he and his servants deployed against them by night. And let me just stop there for a second. A better translation is Abram divided his servants against them, so he split them up. Um, That's how it should be rendered, right? So he split them up, says defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. And so pretty much what this shows is if God is with us, then who could be against us? 
Nobody. Abram goes and it, it, like this just summarizes it real quick. He, he destroys these guys and gets everything back. Now, in verses 17 and 18, this is where it really starts to get interesting because two different kings are going to come and meet Abram. And it's interesting how he's going to respond to these two different kings. So Moses writes this in verses 17 and 18. He says, After Abram returned from defeating Caterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. So the king of Sodom and this king of Salem, Melchizedek, are going to come out and meet Abram. There's definitely going to be some interesting stuff that I'm going to point out from this. But the first thing that I want you to notice is it keeps emphasizing the name Caterlaomer. And the reason for that is he's the head, right? So he's the head. He's the kingpin. So crushing him crushes all the forces with him, right? So just keep that detailed significance in your mind that Abram destroyed the head here of this evil alliance. It's a detail that has significance beyond our text, but I'll come back to that. First, I want to point out some other things before we get to these two kings. Let me ask you, this whole event of Abram taking 318 people and chasing a bigger force who ran off with relatives or or, or things like that, is this the only time this happens in the Bible? Nope. Right away, you should be thinking, wait a minute. I recall something like this in Judges chapters 6 through 8 where the Midianite hordes overwhelmed the land of Israel for seven years, and then God raises up a judge, Gideon, to be the deliverer. And how did Gideon's most first and most profound victory happen? God reduces Gideon's forces down to 300 people, the real 300, right? And very similar to Abram's 318, a pretty small group. And just like Abram divided his forces, if you read, Gideon divided his forces into three groups. Just like Abram attacked at night, Gideon attacked at night. Just like Abram was given intel, right, from the person who escaped to tell him about all of this, Gideon was given intel when he heard one soldier tell another soldier <clears throat> about his dream of how Gideon was going to win. So you got all these parallels. This is no accident. And so clear similarities, clear parallels. Apparently a pattern has started with Abram that at least happens one more time. But is that the only other time it happens? Or is there another? Some of you might be thinking, ah, I know where you're going with this. First Samuel 30. You're right. Thank you for knowing your Bible so well. Because we have clear parallels there as well. The fierce Amalekites, which I talked about you know, earlier in the sermon, they raided one of David's towns. They stole David's wives, his kids, and the wives and kids of all of David's men and all their property. Okay? And so David, it tells us he's strengthened by the Lord, and then he's commanded to pursue them. So he pursues them with 600 men. But prior to catching up with them, 200 of them decide to stay back and, and guard their, their, uh, uh, their supplies. And so only 400 continued in the pursuit. Again, similar in ballpark. Gideon's got 300, Abram's got 318, David's got 400. The point is, it's a couple hundred people, several hundred against hordes, right? And like Abram, David is going to get intel from someone that escapes the enemy camp, and then he's going to attack, and he's going to get all the stuff back that was stolen and plundered. So at least three times this happens. Now, why am I bringing this up? It's because... When Moses reports this event of Abram's life, he's showing us that a pattern is being started. A pattern that shows a conquering hero, God's man, right? A conquering hero who will put himself at risk against great odds 
to take captivity captive. Because in each time, captives are taken and they take the captivity captive. Those who were captive now belong to the man of God who goes and retrieves them. So Abram did it, Gideon did it, and David did it. Now here's the thing, with Abram and David, these two faithful men of God, what do they do with their plunder right when it's done? Abram, as we're going to see, is going to give a tenth of it to God's priest. So he's going to use the plunder for worship. David is going to take all the plunder and set it aside for Solomon to build the temple, again, to worship God. Now, Gideon totally does it wrong, right? Gideon Gideon does it wrong. He alone fails. He takes the plunder, builds an ephod for himself, which then becomes a snare, and Israel starts worshiping idols. And so the idea there is, right, you got the pattern set with Abram. It looks like Gideon's going to keep it, but he shows you what the failed hero does. But then comes along David, and he keeps the pattern, and it shows you what the, the true hero does. Now, I say all this because you need to remember that the Bible presents a unified story that is all heading to one Savior, Jesus. And so what that means is history is not just history. The events of redemptive history often become repetitive patterns that teach you what to expect in the future, especially of the perfect man to come who will restore everything. So Abram's actions here become a pattern, a repetitious pattern, a type or a shadowing that will be repeated by others. First repeated by the failed type, Gideon, but then repeated and reinforced by the successful type, David. And what are they all pointing to? Consider Ephesians 4.8 about Jesus's victory. It says, when he ascended on high, and this is quoting the Old Testament, it says, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to the people. Now, this isn't accidental how Paul is describing Jesus' victory over sin and death and what Jesus did. He took captivity captive. He took the captives captive. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, that he comes and he binds the strong man, which is Satan. Now, that's not the same as the Revelation 20 binding, but he binds Satan so Satan cannot stop Jesus from plundering his house. And what does Jesus save? from Satan once he has him subdued. Jesus rescues his bride, just like David rescues his brides, right? And then what does Jesus do with the plunder? He uses it to build the church, God's spiritual temple. So my point is these events in the Old Testament typologically point forward to Christ. We say Christ is in the Old Testament all the time. And Before I did the studying, I didn't realize it's even in the very pattern of Abram's victory here is pointing to Christ. It's just mind-blowing, right? But it's going to get even cooler once I start talking about Melchizedek, not just because it's a fun name to say, but there's a lot of cool stuff here. So again, let's read verse 18. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. Now, who is, well, we'll get to who he is in a minute. Let me give some basic info. His name in Hebrew, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And the place he rules, Salem, anyone know where that is? Jerusalem. It's going to be renamed Jerusalem at a later time. So this is a priest king called the king of righteousness who rules Jerusalem. And it tells us he was a priest to God most high. What Moses is telling us is he's a worshiper of the one true God. So apparently, Abram was not the only person alive who knew the one true God. Now, liberal scholars try to downplay this, and they try to say, well, Melchizedek worshipped a Canaanite god named El Elyon. That's nonsense. 
El was one god in their pantheon, and then his grandson was Elion. Only the Hebrews took those two words, El Elion, and applied them to one being, which is the God of the Bible. And only the Hebrews said the God, their God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So <clears throat> the bottom line is, Melchizedek is a worshiper of the one true God. And Abram's going to make it clear in what he says later that he and Melchizedek worship the same God. And so I'll get to that in the next few verses. But the most pressing question for us that people always wonder is, who is this guy? I mean, he knew the Lord. He was a priest of God before there were priests. Before there's a priesthood of Israel, this guy's a priest. And he brings out bread and wine, right? And so a lot of you are thinking, oh, I know that's significant. Yes. Now, in the most literal sense, Abram and his team would be hungry after battle. And so this would be the food and drink of victors. But obviously, I think we all know there's more to the bread and wine than just that. And so what we normally would do is look forward. But before you look forward in the Bible, you should look backward. Is this the first time bread and wine is mentioned? No, bread has only been mentioned one time before this in Genesis 3.19, and it's associated with the curse. You will toil for your bread by sweat. You will eat bread, right? It's the only time bread's mentioned. Wine is only mentioned one time as well. Chapter 9, when Noah gets drunk, and again, there's a whole curse built into that situation when Noah gets drunk. Now remember, with Abram, God is reversing the curse that's found in the first 11 chapters. So bread and wine are only mentioned in a cursed way before Abram, and now this priest of God comes out for Abram with bread and wine as a blessing. So now bread and wine henceforth is transformed in the storyline from curse to blessing. And from this point forward, you then move in the storyline. When's the next place we get to, the, to bread and wine and blessing? Passover, right? Passover. And then you move forward. I think you guys all know where we're going with this. Then you get to a Passover that occurred 2,000 years ago. And Jesus pulls that bread and wine out and says it points to an even bigger blessing the redemption and the victory over sin and death itself. So God, my point is God is using this man in the events of Abram's life to start this thread on a lot of important things throughout the rest of Scripture. So again, that's the bread and the wine. But we get back to the question, who is Melchizedek? The Scripture doesn't tell us. He's a mystery. He's an enigma. Not only to us, but, but to the Jews during the time of Christ, they were fascinated with him as well. The Dead Sea Scrolls and one text elevate him to being the Messiah, right? And then another text makes him a heavenly judge that sends people to hell. Either way, they all see Melchizedek as being somebody important. But again, and so because that Christ and, and the author of Hebrews and pretty much all Jews in that time intuitively knew that this guy is a sign of something. He's a type of something, a shadow of something greater, but we do know, because he's showing up and meeting Abram here, he did have to be a flesh and blood person. So who could he be? Now, what I'm going to give you is speculation. But if I had to guess, and if the Lord would let me gamble, and then we would work it all out in our treasures in heaven, I would bet that this is Shem. I would bet this is Shem for a lot of reasons, the son of Noah. When you look at the rest of the world at this point, it seems as if the one true God is forgotten. Yet... When you look at the life dates for everybody after the flood, Noah would have still been alive for about two-thirds of Abram's life. Shem is going to outlive Abram by a few years. 
Shem actually lives longer than Abram. Abram's going to die before Shem does. Now, Shem is a man that knows the true God. He witnessed this all, right? He, was, he spent 98 years. Imagine talking to a man who spent 98 years in the world before the flood. That was Shem. And then he lived through the flood, spent that year on the ark, and he was there for it all. He was there to see the Tower of Babel incident. He was there to see the nations come about and be separated and to see the languages. So he knows. He knows the one true God. And we know that Noah offered a sacrifice when he got off the ark and God accepted it. Where do you think Noah learned how to sacrifice in a priestly way? Well, Abel made a sacrifice that God accepted. And then Seth and those folks who called on the name of the Lord did the same thing. So Noah learned from them. Shem sees from Noah. My point is, you have a a potential priesthood here. People who knew how to sacrifice and and function in in a priest kind of way, right? So you have to keep in mind, no one on earth should be able to be classified as a priest of God until the Levites. Yet... And there's no priests from the nations, right? Israel had to be made into a nation in order for God to create the priesthood from them that would then imitate the sacrifices that happened before the flood. Yet Shem predates the nations. He, in fact, a third of them come from him. He has a continuity with the pre-flood and pre-nations world. And so for these reasons, I think... He probably took on the name Melchizedek at some point and was king over this very important piece of real estate that later God is going to use to build his city. And for what it's worth, just so you think I'm not going crazy here, the ancient Jewish Targums also speculated that it was Shem. So I'm in good company. It makes sense to me. But I got to throw this disclaimer out there. The text never directly tells us this. It doesn't. So we don't know for sure who he is. And the reason the text doesn't tell us is Melchizedek is more useful to the Bible as an unidentifiable mystery than he would ever be if we knew who he was. Genesis keeps him ambiguous on purpose. Now, some people wrongly think he's a pre-incarnate Christ. And what that means is, is like there are times in the Old Testament where Christ will show up in human form before he actually takes on the flesh. And some people think that's, this is an example of that. And they will cite Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So I'll read it real quick and then explain why they're wrong. Um, it says this, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abram and blessed him as he returned from, defeated, from defeating the kings. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So it's really verse 3 where people get this from, right? Because in in verse 3 it says he's without father or mother, without genealogy, he's got no beginning or ending of days, and so they're like, it must be Christ before he became flesh. And Christophanies were real things. Jesus did at times appear in the Old Testament, right? But here's the problem. First, this guy was an actual king over territory, and he was recognized as such. Christophanies always appear and then vanish. We don't have an example of a Christophany sticking around for a full lifetime to be a king. That just didn't happen. You know, I'm going to rule the city, and then I'll go back to to heaven. No. Second, if you look at verse 3, I'll go back to it. Verse 3 says, he resembles the Son of God. says, but resembling the Son of God. Now, what does the word resemble mean? You don't resemble yourself. You are yourself, 
Okay, so that right there is the smoking gun that this guy is not Christ. He can't, right? So then people are going to say, yeah, but what about the no genealogy and the no beginning and ending stuff? This is a literary observation, not a historical one. And so what do I mean by that? Genesis does not tell us who his parents were. It does not tell us what his lineage is. That's remarkable because Genesis tells you who everybody's parents are and what their lineage is. Yet with this guy, Genesis goes out of its way not to do that, okay? So this man appears on the scene out of nowhere from a city you haven't heard of yet, okay? He receives a tithe, he blesses Abram, and he's a priest of God. This is magnificent stuff. You're going to want to know who he is. And then he's just gone and he never gets mentioned again until Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, that's where where David's comparing his victories to Abram's victories. And that's why he's going to bring up Melchizedek. But I'll get to, uh, to Psalm 110 later. Okay, It's actually fascinating. David's going to take what's happening there and compare it to the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's, it's just fascinating. Okay, But as far as Genesis 14 goes, none of this background information about Melchizedek is, is mentioned. So the author of Hebrews says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a point off of this. It doesn't tell us who his mother and father was. He's got no genealogy. It's as if he has no beginning. He has no end. And so that literary observation is going to be used to make theological points. He makes a perfect shadow of Christ, the one who really does have no beginning or ending of days and is the king of peace and, and the king of righteousness. And so... A literary observation used to make theological points. That's the most we could say about who this guy is. So, getting back to the text, this king comes out. He meets Abram. In verses 19 and 20, it tells us this. It says, he blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. Okay? So, he blesses Abram. Now, if we're thinking, we should be saying, well, wait a second, that reminds me of Genesis 12, 3, where God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, right? So even if this man is Shem, he knows that God has picked this man, Abram, and that God is moving the plan forward with this guy. If he's not Shem, we still know he's superior to Abram. He's a superior, but he recognizes this is God's guy. This is the guy that I need to bless. And so he blesses Abram. And presumably, God will bless Melchizedek for blessing Abram, because that's what he promised he would do. And what's interesting is Melchizedek calls God, quote, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And again, I I highlight that because the pagans of that time, the Canaanites, they did not ascribe to any God the title creator of heaven and earth. They believed heaven and earth was the corpse of some dragon god that got defeated, right? No, only the the Hebrews said, no, there's a God who made it all, heaven and earth. And Melchizedek is calling God that God, right? Again, that's one more thing a pre-flood man would definitely know, just saying. But anyhow, this guy is also wise because he knows that Abram's victory is not due to the strength of him or the 318 warriors. Instead, Melchizedek's now going to bless God for the victory. Because that's who it really comes from. Look, look at the, what he says next. He says, Blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. God has handed your enemies over to you. So is it impossible for 318 men to beat a vast army? Yeah, usually. But 
If God is the one handing the army over, that 318 is more than enough. Okay, so that's, that's what happened here. Abram, you were faithful. Your faith led to faithfulness, and God made you victorious over the multitude. So this man who knows, this man knows who the true God is, and he knows that God is sovereign and that victory comes from God. Pretty much he knows what a lot of other Old Testament writers are going to later repeat, that victory comes through God alone. Well, Abram recognizes this man as a superior, as one who represents the God that Abram now worships, right? And so we read in the rest of verse 20, it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now listen, Abram did not owe this man the spoil. This guy was not his personal king. This guy did not fund Abram's campaign. Abram is giving this gift because he recognizes something special here. And the book of Hebrews will tell us that the, the superior blesses the inferior, right? And the inferior gives the tithe to the superior. So Abram's recognizing there's something special about this guy. And he gives him a tenth. Now, I do want to say that, that some people will try to use this passage to say this is why Christians should tithe. This is why it's 10%. Because Christ is a priest in the order of Kilzadek. And here, Abram tithes to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So they'd say, see, 10% is still the number that we're supposed to use. And it's an interesting argument, and I used to buy it, but I don't buy it anymore. I think we need to give 100%. But anyhow, in some form or another, you still got to pay your bills. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think that the 10% can be justified from this. And, and here's why. Okay, this was a one-time thing. Abram wasn't repeatedly giving him 10%. Second, this was not a law or an obligation, yet the tithe is a law, an obligation. This was just a gift. Additionally, if anybody were ever in the New Testament going to pick a time to say we still owe 10%, that number specifically, Hebrews 7 would have been the perfect place because that's where he's talking about Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. He doesn't make that point at all. His whole point with this is the fact that Abram gave his tithe to Melchizedek proves that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Levi's. And that's all wrapped into a bigger question. How could you say Messiah is high priest when high priest is supposed to be a Levite and Messiah is supposed to be from Judah? He's saying, well, yes, Messiah is from Judah, but there's a greater priesthood than Levi's, the Melchizedekian one. And that's the whole point of Hebrews 7. It has nothing to do about tithing. Now, I don't think that, so some people would be like, okay, well, let's go to 2 Corinthians 9 and say God wants a cheerful giver. That's not a passage talking about how much we should give either. That's talking about an above and beyond special offering for the poor churches in Judea. So I think that it's hard to say one way or another what a percentage is that we're supposed to give. But honestly, my thought is if the Old Testament started off as 10% with lesser promises... And if the Egyptians gave 20% to Pharaoh at the request of Joseph, I just think that we need to be more generous rather than less generous with what we're willing to give to the work of the kingdom. <clears throat> and I'll leave it at that. But anyhow, all that, that tithe, is how Abram responds to this righteous king. The text then ends with, ends with his response to a wicked king. Look at verse 21. It says, Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions yourself. Now, keep in mind, the king of Sodom has no room to talk. He lost, so he crawled out of the tar pit, probably smelling. Um, he, he can't really say, give me anything, but he's trying to seem uh, magnanimous here. He, he's saying, look, I just want the people. I just want my people back, but you could keep all the wealth. 
And of course, with the people, you could build, rebuild the wealth next year. So he's not sounding greedy, and it sounds reasonable. Abram, you put your neck on the line. Go ahead and keep all the money. Keep the risk. You deserve it. And it makes sense, right? But Abram's response is, is interesting. The text closes with verses 22 through 24. It says, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, they can take their share. So first, notice that in that that whole block there, Abram appeals to Yahweh when he says, I raise my hand in an oath to the Lord. The word Lord there stands in place of God's name, Yahweh. I made an appeal to Yahweh, and here's what I swore to Yahweh. And notice that he calls him Yahweh, God, most high creator of heaven and earth. The same thing Melchizedek called God. So they worship the same God. The only thing Abram's doing is adding God's name. That God who made the heaven and earth, El Elyon, is also Yahweh, which is fascinating. Okay, but anyhow, so the nature of the oath is I'm not going to take the smallest little bit of plunder because Sodom's evil. Now, it's interesting. He took the plunder from Egypt, but he will not take the plunder from Sodom. Even their wealth is dirty in his eyes. He doesn't want this wicked king, and I think this is ultimately the motive. He knows this guy or he, he is suspicious of this guy's character, he does not want this guy saying, I made Abram rich. And, and I think that's, that's very faithful on Abram's part. Because Abram wants everyone to know that the Lord is the one who made him rich. The Lord promised him all the land. He doesn't need to take anything from this king since it's all going to belong to him and his descendants anyway. So he's trusting God's promises. If he takes it from this guy, this guy could say, well, yeah, the Lord used me. Abram's going to be like, nope, God's going to fulfill this completely apart from you. And given that you can't find Sodom anywhere on earth, God does fulfill this uh, apart from him. So Abram's not going to take anything. Now, his three buddies who helped him, he's like, they didn't swear an oath, so you give them something. You give them something with this, but, but, you know, and then the king of Sodom, you could keep everything else. And pretty much his total rejection of the king of Sodom and his total, like, you know, in a sense, uh, honoring the king of Salem, that's how this chapter ends, right? That's, uh, that's how this text ends. Um, Abram shows no respect to the wicked king, great reverence to the righteous king. And, and we should understand, as I said, Hebrews 7 makes it clear that the greater blesses the lesser, so Melchizedek is a higher position than Abram. Um, and there's more stuff I want to say on Melchizedek. I know we're done with the text, but there's, there's, there's more. There's just more here. Melchizedek is the first person in the Bible called both a king and a priest. And that's significant. Now, he's directly or explicitly called a king and a priest. Adam, Noah, and Abram are not called kings and priests, but they're described as kings and priests. For example, Adam and Noah are given dominion. That's rule, right? Adam and Noah worship the Lord with sacrifices. That's priesthood. Abram was promised kings will come from him, which again is royalty, and Abram builds altars unto the Lord, which again is priesthood. So kingliness and priestliness is implicit with these men, but it's explicit with Melchizedek, which shows his greater status. And ultimately, where this all points to 
is when Israel gets established as a nation, what does Exodus 19.6 say of them? God makes the whole nation his royal priesthood. So corporately, Israel is the priest king of the world. But did they succeed? No, they failed. And so then comes to fix the situation, the perfect individual Israelite who is king according to the household of David and priest according to the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that is Jesus Christ. He comes as the priest king of the entire world. And then what's amazing is through him, since we're saved by him, 1 Peter 2.9 says, what of us? We all become priest kings. We become royal priests. And so it's just, it's just fascinating, but that theme starts here. They start here and they keep pressing forward through many iterations in the biblical storyline until we get to the one person this was all meant to be fulfilled by, and that's the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Now, if that's not fascinating enough, it fascinates me, I don't know if it fascinates you, Psalm 110 provides a commentary. David gives a commentary on Genesis 14, and it's, it's, it's just amazing, right? So pretty much what David's going to do is look back to Genesis 14 as the type or the shadow, and then it's going to prophetically look forward to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. Now, keep in mind, Psalm 110 is the psalm Christ quoted most. I don't know if you realize that. That's the one where Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, okay? And then it goes on to talk about the the kingship of David and how he's going to reign and his reign will reach over the nations. But what I want us to focus on is I want us to focus on verses four through six. First verse four, here's what it says. David says, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever." according to the pattern of Melchizedek, right? So this is the first time this guy comes up again. And so what's, what David's saying is, look, this ultimate David king, this one that I'm calling Lord, so it's not me, David. It's one I'm calling Lord, but he's going to come for me. He's also going to be a high priest forever. Now, how could you be a high priest forever? You'd have to live forever, right? So that's all implied here, right? Now, if you keep reading, though, it pulls in some stuff from Genesis 14, especially in the Hebrew. It's harder to see in the English. But he says, the Lord is at your right hand, talking about this, this king. He says, he will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. Essentially, this is what we see with Abram, right? David's saying this guy will crush kings in the day of his anger. Abram defeated the coalition of kings. It says he will execute judgment on the nations, heaping up corpses. Hebrews 7.1 in the Greek says Abram slaughtered the kings, which also implies he slaughtered their armies. So he heaped up the corpses. But the most interesting part is it says he will crush leaders over the entire world. So I left it up so you could see the word leaders. The reason why I'm calling that to attention is leaders is the wrong word. You might say, okay, I'm using the ESV. It says chiefs. That's also the wrong word. The Hebrew word is rosh, okay, which does mean head. Rosh means head, and it's singular. It's singular. The text says he crushes the head, okay, the head of the entire world. It's one head that he's crushing, okay? And so if you think about it, our text went out of its way to keep telling us that Abram's enemy coalition had one head, Cater Laomer, and Abram destroyed him. He destroyed him. He crushed that head. So again, it's looking backward, then it's looking forward. But it's looking even more backward to Genesis 3.15 because the word for crushing the head of the serpent is rosh. He will crush your rosh is what God says the Messiah 
is going to do to Satan. And this theme, again, repeats itself multiple times in the Old Testament. And so Cater Laumer was just one of the serpent's offsprings, one of the, I guess you could say, types of the future ruler to come. And he was crushed by Abram, who by virtue of Christ is aligned with the seed of the woman. David then looks at his own conquests and the promises God made to him in 2 Samuel 7, which by the way, if you compare them, they're almost the same as the promises God made to Abram in chapter 12, verses one through three. Well, David sees the same in himself, and so he writes this of himself and, and, and is alluding back to Genesis 14 and the promise of Genesis 3.15. But then he's pressing forward, right? He's pressing forward to this priest who he calls Lord, his descendant, this Davidic king who's going to conquer the whole world, right? The Messiah. And think about it. Psalm 2 says the kings of the earth will take their stand against the Messiah, and yet they're going to be crushed, We read the book of Revelation and you have one evil ruler who's the head of all the other kingdoms and he's going to be crushed by Jesus. And then ultimately, Satan himself will be crushed under Jesus's feet. And praise God, Romans 16.20 says also under our feet by virtue of our union with Christ. So again, all of this is starting here. In Genesis 14, we see Abram as a type crushing a head of an evil empire. And then David taking that, and then the New Testament taking it, and it all builds from that Genesis 3.15 promise. So when we say that all Scripture, including the Old Testament, points to Christ, I pray that you're starting to take that claim seriously. The Bible is meant to be read this way. Later biblical writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to use the same words and themes that were set forth in Genesis to give us this repetition of types and shadows. In fact, the way it was explained to me once is is it's like a ladder. It's called the eschatological ladder, the ladder towards the end times. And on your way there, you have each step of the ladder. That's a type or an event that follows the pattern. Each one's important because it tells you what to look for when you get to the real deal. And at the very top of the ladder is Christ himself, the one who fulfills it all. This is how biblical prophecy works. This is how biblical typology works. It's all moving to Jesus. This is why Paul said this is a mystery. The Old Testament authors themselves couldn't directly see this. But now that Christ has come and we're at the top of the ladder, you could look back and you start seeing all these steps along the way. You start then seeing how words are used and themes are used and how they're repeated. You start seeing how with Abram, Gideon, and David, and then ultimately Christ, the same themes and patterns keep happening. And so that is one reason I love preaching on Genesis because guess where all the patterns start? Right here, Genesis. And then we get to follow these threads all the way through the rest of the Bible. So I love this stuff. It makes me adore Christ more, and I pray it'll do the same for you. So anyway, as I wrap this all up, there really is not a lot to apply from this, okay? I would be wrong if I said, all right, take up your swords, 318 of you, go to Ukraine and take Putin out. That's not what this is getting at, okay? This isn't telling you to do that. But there are principles we could pull from this. First, don't just talk the talk. Be faithful. If you say you believe on the Lord, then live like it. May your faith produce faithfulness. Abram trusted the promises of God. That's why he could do what he was gonna do. He knew that God was not gonna let him lose because of those promises. So he could chase down an army with 318 men. And that's why he could also turn down a fortune 
from the king of Sodom without blinking an eye because he knows God's going to give him so much more. Okay, So you have to ask yourself, do you have that kind of faith? Do you believe on Christ? Do you trust Christ? Do you trust his promises? Because if you believe his promises, then some of the temporary decisions that come before you will be a lot easier to make. You'll be in a lot less ethical dilemmas. And like Abram, you will be able to say no to corrupt offers without even thinking about it. So do you trust him? Okay, because every decision that comes your way in some form or another is a test of faithfulness. And those decisions need to be made in light of what we believe about God's promises to us. And so are you living in light of your salvation? Or instead, do you find yourself like Lot, constantly looking at the cities of man, constantly lusting over vanity fair, and then finding yourself in trouble? And then always sucking other people into your problems to where they have to rescue you from the trouble like Abram had to do. I pray that we would be Abrams here and not Lot's, right? Too many of us end up as Lot's and we need to stop. We, our faith needs to come forth as faithfulness. And that's what Abram displayed here. Second, okay, this goes right along with what I preached on Sunday. Abram went after the one. What about you? You'll say, but it's not easy to go evangelize. It's probably harder to chase down an army with only 318 people, you know, and it's not easy for a shepherd to leave the 99 for the one. The mission is costly. But if we say we believe, then like our good shepherd, we would go after the one. They're, they are meant to hear the gospel from us. And just like our God granted Abram victory, he's with us. He'll grant us victory as well. And here's what I mean. Do we trust what Jesus said? He said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. All that the Father gives. Now, we don't know who the Father is given, but we're the ones who are supposed to call him. So if you trust that, you could go out with full courage and bravery and preach the gospel to those who are lost, knowing that all who the Father gives him will come. It doesn't depend on your skill. It doesn't depend on the power of you and your 318 arguments. It just depends on God's faithfulness because he says those who were given will come. If you believe that, if you believe that, then that should embolden your evangelism and chasing the one all of a sudden shouldn't be so hard anymore, right? So may we be like the good shepherd that goes after the one. And then finally, last application point, to seeing Christ hidden and all these historical events and these persons and these battles and, and seeing that these are types and shadows, does it cause your heart to burn inside to want to see Christ even more. Every time I see him somewhere where I didn't know he was, it fires me up to find him in other places. I just want to see the Lord more and more. And I pray that's what we all want. And if it is what you want, then please read the word more consistently. Read it consistently. Ask the Spirit of God to reveal the Son of God to your eyes on all the pages of Scripture. Because this, this wonderful feeling of discovery lights up the soul especially if Christ is who you adore most. Seeing, Genesis, seeing Jesus in Genesis 14 in more places than I originally thought makes me marvel at him more. Before I started studying this, I figured, yeah, he's just in Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a type. I had no idea that the battle itself and all this other stuff was there. But then studying, it's like, whoa, and then discovering it, it makes me love him more. It makes me trust the Bible more. So, so it makes me marvel at him. That makes me then adore him. The adoration then makes me want to serve him better. It boosts my confidence in the word of God. And here's what I mean. A human can't do this. Okay, when you think about what the Bible is, 
an anthology written over 1,500 years by 45 different authors on three different continents and three different languages by people who didn't know each other, there's no way that's going to come together if it's a work of man and form a cohesive, unified story that has thousands of Easter eggs. And yet, that's exactly what this is, a unified story that has thousands of Easter eggs on every page. You're just like, Easter egg, Easter egg. All these little throwbacks that, that point to Christ. Only the Holy Spirit could do that. There's no other religious book in the world that does this. Not even close. That's the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit. So the more I see this stuff in the scripture, the more it just kills any doubt that might creep into my mind. This is the word of God. And every single thing it says is true. So I'm going to believe it and I'm going to follow it and I'm going to do what it says. Okay. And so it's my prayer that that's how we all would come to the word and see it. I pray that we'll all learn these truths and apply them in our lives. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, anybody who doesn't know the Lord, let me tell you something. A day is coming where Satan and his next puppet, who's the Rosh, the head, is going to rise up against God. And, what's, and it's going to look like he's victorious for a while, just like these guys. But Christ is going to come and crush that head. And after that point, he's then going to crush Satan's head and it's game over. So you don't want to be found on the wrong side. Jesus either will be your savior or he'll be your judge. But on that day, it's too late. And let me tell you this, being on Facebook and being part of the VVNG group, and I'm reading about all the people who die up here every day from stupid car accidents and stuff like that, man, you're not guaranteed that you're going to get to see that battle. Your last day might be tonight, right? And so again, if you leave this world, Without Jesus as your Savior, you will confront him as your judge. And he comes to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent is where you belong apart from Christ. So what we are calling on you to do, what the word is calling on you to do, is turn away from your sins. Walk away from them. Believe on Jesus the Lord who died for us. Right? And through his death, he paid our penalty. And his, through his righteous life, he gives us the righteousness we need to be saved. He rose on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He took captivity captive. He rescued his bride. And he's building God's temple through us. So come to him and believe and be saved. If you have any questions about this, come and talk to me or any of the leaders. And we'll walk you through this. With that, we're going to pray. And then I know that was a lot of stuff. And so uh, try to get a good night rest. <laughs> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God.